1: advent and and the theme of tonight's topic
2: (laughs) excellent excellent so we've seen his glory We're, we're awaiting his glory now but we've seen his glory already let's go straight into the topic what do you want to share with us here tonight
1: the general theme is that god who we normally think is transcendent that is above us and that's natural for us to think that um we think about heaven being above, Christ ascended into heaven, Our Lady was assumed into heaven. So we think of heaven as above us, God is above us. But there's a consistent theme right since the, the beginnings of the book of Genesis through the Old Testament into the New Testament and into our present age, our present day, where there is also the same God who is immanent, that is among us, not just transcendent but among us and intimately among us. And that's taken different forms over the millennia. And if we understand that as a common theme, we can see how it climaxes in Christ and climaxes also in certain everyday aspects of our Catholic worship and our Catholic life. Things that we are familiar with, but we need to actually have an extra dimensional understanding of and appreciation of.
2: Because you read the Old Testament and you often get an impression that God is transcendent. He He's commanding, he's giving commandments. He, he works all these great miracles in the Old Testament. He punishes uh, the people of God. And then with Jesus Christ becoming uh, God, becoming first through Jesus Christ, there's that imminence. Do you think God progressively through salvation history made himself more imminent? Or is there that consistent imminence in the Old Testament and the New Testament?
1: It's always there, it has changed. And to agree with your point, In our current age, I think it's more imminent than ever. And that's what we need to realize. We go back to the book of Genesis. We go through the Old Testament. There is plenty of walking and talking with God. Adam and Eve, even after the fall. Um, Noah, Abraham, Moses, the Exodus, Joshua, the Judges, the Kings, the tabernacle, the temple, it's there continuously. It actually graduates during those centuries and it climaxes the first advent of Christ. We have seen his glory and the word became flesh and dwelt among us or tabernacled among us and we saw his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. But it climaxed there. And there was a build-up for thousands of years beforehand. But does it end there? And the good news, no, it doesn't. It continues in very intimate and personal ways.
2: It, it, really, it really does. And, and it's as if uh, the tearing of the temple uh, from top to bottom meant that Christ uh, symbolised the fact that Christ brought us closer to to the father than before. So it, it really does make sense and it's quite eloquent in salvation history how that progressively is manifested. But for many people in day-to-day life, they may not see God as as being imminent or in their everyday circumstances or in the midst of their ordinary circumstances, but they may see God as transcendent. You know, above us. You know, how could he care or about my day to day activities or be interested in me? How can someone reconcile a transcendent God being in everyday circumstances and being with me here today, and I can have that personal conversation or relationship with Him?
1: Well, if people today in the in a world where atheism and agnosticism, etc., is is growing very sadly. I actually think it's a positive thing if people have an understanding and a belief in God who's above us. Now, that's good, wonderful. Uh, but yes, we need to go further with that understanding and know how God is among us. And is there a contradiction? The answer is no, God's infinite. God is ubiquitous. God is everywhere, present to all creation simultaneously. And he, there's no limits on what he can do when it comes to how he manifests himself. These are traditionally called theophans, a manifestation of God in a particular form so that we as creatures with, with eyes that can only see material things in colours, that we can apprehend God in a certain limited form. There's nothing impossible uh, for God in that respect. And we've seen it. Um, You know, we heard God speaking to Adam and Eve. We know that he spoke to Noah. He had many conversations with Abraham. I've documented at least eight formal conversations over the decades with Abraham. And then when we get to Moses, we get to the Exodus event and Moses, we see God um, now manifesting himself in very proximate and visible forms cloud by day, fire by night. Uh, this is called the Ananai Hakavod, the cloud of glory. Or another term for it was the Kavod, mm-hmm. or the indwelling of the glory. Indwelling where? Among his people. Why these forms? Well, for the form of fire, um, and we're familiar with God appearing in form of fire, Old and New Testaments. But fire was to protect the Israelites from the advancing Egyptian army as they passed from Egypt through the Red Sea into Sinai. And, of course, fire can be seen at night. A cloud, the cloud of glory. We have something in the Old Testament. I've got a few references here. Exodus 25, 22. At first, here's Moses leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And that's an awesome task. And he had the blessing of being able to commune with God face to face. And that was first in what was called the Tent of Meeting, which is outside of the camp. And God was visibly visibly descended there and conversed with Moses. You, One could see Moses conversing with God in the form of this cloud of glory. That was yes. to graduate. In very soon into what was called the tabernacle, a more formal tent structure, uh, rectangular in shape, a fence of about six foot, part, six foot high partitioned an area from the rest of the Israelites. And that was called the holies. And within that was another tent structure called the holy of holies. And that was the center of Israelite worship and focus and inside the holy of holies. Was the Ark of the Covenant, likewise designed by God, given those designs given to Moses? That was God's footstool, thrown on it. It carried the Ten Commandments, a bowl of manna from heaven, Aaron's priestly rod. So it was. It carried as an ark, but it enthroned as well, and it was God's footstool. And God dwelt above the ark in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. The cherubim angels faced inwards to, to symbolize the worship of this. God among us as cloud in the tabernacle and that was predominant uh that was a predominant focal point of Hebrew Israelite worship for approximately 400 years ended up being stationed in Shiloh north of Jerusalem about 20 kilometers north of Jerusalem but then that was graduated again God inspired David with the thought, but Solomon executed the thought, and that was the first temple, which was finished in 957 BC, lasted until 587 BC. So that's a 370-year period. And the temple in Jerusalem built on Mount Moriah, that mountain where Abraham was to, to sacrifice Isaac, that sacred mountain which... The Jews even to this day believing there exists there the foundation stone, the point on which God, at, at that point where God began the creation of the world, that was the site of the first temple. Same structure, holies, holy of holies, uh, the thick curtain that separate the holy of holies from the holies, the ark of the covenant, the glory cloud, the ananai kavod, the shekhina. God was present there, but that was an exclusive room everyone knew God was present there when the temple was complete and I can give you the quote here when the temple was opened uh, it was a seven-year project and by the way the Phoenicians our ancestors up the north uh yes w- had a very very significant role in the construction of God's first Temple exactly supplying well, it's a,
2: it's, a, it's a very Lebanese thing you know, yeah, had a role in the construction yes
1: but I think the laborers of um of Hiram of Tyre probably had a little bit more uh, authenticity in, and quality in their workmanship than some of our builders in Sydney today, but that's no <laughs> joke on the side. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Phoenicians supplied the skill, the craftsmanship, and the cedar wood.
2: And the cedar wood, yeah, Absolutely. for the beans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was and, it used yeah. for the beans?
1: Yeah, and, and, uh, oh, and before the temple, it was also... David's palace likewise cedar wood and help from the Phoenicians from Tyre etc now when the temple after seven years construction was complete and they had dedicated dedication ceremony there they laid out the sacrifices in front and what we saw what everyone saw was God descend in the form of fire consume those sacrifices and then enter into the temple and occupy the holy of holies enthroned over the Ark of the Covenant the reference is uh, 2 Corinthians 7.1. If I could read it for you. When Solomon had ended his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The word glory is not accidental. This is the common term used. Karvod in Hebrew, the glory. How does the glory manifest himself over the millennia? Cloud fire and other forms as well. Beforehand voice, we'll see later on, uh wind we'll see later on, tongues of fire, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and climaxing somehow as we'll see soon enough in the Christian era. So so really
2: God has been imminent in the old testament. If you think about it, through, by, by actually uh, through the temple and through the wonders and the miracles and everything that he worked, he was there present. So it, 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 say so his transcendence was demonstrated there, but also his imminence. he's very very imminent, very close even in the Old Testament. But wh- but why does there need to be that barrier? Many people ask, why does there need to be that barrier between God and man in the form of the temple?
1: Well, it was temporary, and there was a barrier. Only the priests could go into the holies, but only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and only one day a year, and that was the 10th day of the month of Tishri, the day of atonement, to do the sacrifices for the sins of the people and his own sin. He would prepare for a week beforehand, prayer and fasting, ceremonial washing, put on white robes made of four different parts, And in and out he would go, in and out of the Holy of Holies, four times that same day to do the different sacrifices of the bull, the scapegoat, and various other sacrifices offered by the people. And he would pass through the curtain, which, by the way, symbolized How heaven was shut because of original sin. So the high priest here would pierce through that temple in the presence of God as cloud, do the sacrifices and utter the sacred name of Yahweh. No one else could pronounce that sacred name. One extra biblical rabbinical tradition says that the high priest also had a rope tied around his right ankle to pull him out in case he dropped dead in the presence of exactly. The exactly, And he had 12 bells around the fringe of his vestment to so that um, if he's walking, he could be heard. And if we yeah. couldn't hear the bells anymore, that would signal something that perhaps ha- had happened to him. So they'll pull him out. But that emphasised the exclusivity of the Holy of Holies. That was temporary, and perhaps that was... Uh, That's how God ordained it then to emphasize the majesty of God, the sacredness of God, but also how, because of original sin, we were shut out of heaven. But that was all to come to an end. Um, And we'll see how it comes to an end. The temple would be destroyed the ninth day of Av, in 587 BC, the Babylonians destroyed the temple. Uh, as a chastisement upon the Judeans for their infidelity. Before the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians, and it was a destruction also of the city of Jerusalem, the enslavement of the peoples, their exile into Babylon, so it was a catastrophe for the uh, Judeans at the time. But before that destruction, Ezekiel, who was also now, who had been in exile in Babylon since 597 BC, he sees a vision of the of the Kavad, the cloud of glory, depart slowly in stages like a reluctant spouse who has doesn't really want to leave but feels compelled to leave because of the infidelities of of his wife. And here the spouse is Israel or Judea, who's become uh, unfaithful through various sins and corruptions and injustices and also idolatries. And that glory departs from the temple. Ezekiel sees this. I can give you the reference: Ezekiel eleven twenty-three. He sees the glory cloud depart in stages to a mountain in the east, to the east of the temple mount, and ascend back into heaven. If you want yeah. to know the name of that mountain, that's what we call later on. Will be called Mount Olivet. Mm-hmm. Now, bank that because yeah. it's significance here. The glory departs. And catastrophe ensues upon the the Judeans. And Jeremiah, another prophet. This is an age of great prophets. There's Daniel also in Babylon since 605 BC. Ezekiel there since 597 BC. Isaiah was beforehand prophesying the imminent doom of of seeing the doom of Israel and the imminent doom of Judea if they stop. They did not stop their infidelity. And then you've also got Jeremiah, the saddest of all the prophets who has remained in Judea, preaching against revolt, who ends up being put to death by his own people. Um, But Jeremiah tells the Judeans, settle down in Babylon, get married, have families, start up businesses, because you're going to be there for 70 years, and then they'll return. What happens when they return? That's the next phase.
2: Wow, wow. So, so they're in exile. God has placed them into exile, and they have to accept that. They have to accept that. Well, I wonder what the spiritual significance is of accepting the exile.
1: Um, well, part of it's it's this is chastisement, exactly. Yeah, God chastises not to destroy. He chastises seeking repentance. And the realization that they they were so chastised because of their infidelities—it's a cleansing, it's a reboot. If you want to put it in those terms, in those seventy years in 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 Babylon, some became very comfortable, very successful in Babylon, and they'll never return to Judea. Mm. But the memory of the the initial promise to Abraham and reinforcing the time of Moses and and the entry under Joshua that this that land to the west the the you know the promised land is where they should be and they would have to return and it, they would return and they would return in dramatic manner because these Babylonians who had uh, conquered the Judeans in five eighty seven B C. They ended up being the greatest empire in their time. They had eclipsed the Assyrians. They were um, triumphant over the Egyptians. And in their arrogance, and this is in the year 539 BC, and Daniel's still alive. Uh, He's now very old. And Balthazar, who's the king, has a feast. And he gets the sacred vessels from the Temple of Jerusalem, which had been captured Back in five eighty seven BC, so it's forty eight years old, and he decides to have a feast and drink out of these sacred vessels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what happens? You have the famous right in hand peering and writing on the wall. Daniel's called in to interpret those words. Many many take or you fasten, and basically Daniel says, "Well, you have been judged. You've been found wanting, and your kingdom will be divided." Words to that effect. Uh, and before long, the Persians eclipsed the Babylonians, defeated them at the Battle of Opus. Uh, the Babylonians are then incorporated into the Archaemenid Kingdom or the Persian Empire. Yeah. And the Persian Empire becomes the next great empire of that time which and will be for the next 200 years up until Alexander the Great. But the king there was Cyrus. And for an Eastern despot, he was a little bit more enlightened than previous Assyrian or Babylonian despots. And he decreed the release of all captive peoples. And that was in five, around 537 BC. And slowly the Judeans would track back to Judea and, and Jerusalem. And this is the time of Zerubbabel. Then we're followed later by Nehemiah and then Ezra. And there, those three would lead reconstruction at three different levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zerubbabel, the rebuilding of the temple, uh, Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city walls, and Ezra rebuilding fidelity to the Mosaic Law. Now, the second temple would be start construction, 538 BC, and despite a lot of local protests and objections and uh, obstacles, uh, the Persian king, Supported the reconstruction of the temple. So it was eventually finished in 515 BC. But the second temple was nothing like the grand glorious temple of Solomon. I, got, I read you a quote where um, boys, now old men now, this is around 515 BC, who were boys when the first temple was destroyed and taken into captivity in Babylon. These boys, now old men, they could remember the first temple and they're looking at the second temple and they say the following, who is there yet among you who saw this house in its former glory and how are you looking upon it now? Is it a non-entity in your eyes? So the second temple, because the second temple was built at a time when this is a, a community maybe no more than 50,000 strong, a century and a half of slow return back to Judea. And as I said, many of them didn't return. That's right. Uh, This was an impoverished community compared to the glory days of David and Solomon. And so the second temple was mediocre in comparison, but the the most uh, distressing aspect about the second temple is that it didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. And it didn't have the glory presence, the 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 the, uh, The Ark of the Covenant was lost at the same time the temple was destroyed back in 587 BC. Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant, that's God's footstool, throne on earth, took the golden altar of incense, took the golden menorah candlestick, took them to Mount Nebo in a cave, and they'll be lost forever. Uh, not even Hollywood could find the Ark of the Covenant with Indiana Jones in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1984, right? It's been lost and it's been lost forever. And despite what you might find on YouTube, certain videos claiming it's been rediscovered in Ethiopia or somewhere else in Africa.
2: Yeah, the Ethiopian one is quite a popular
1: Yeah, it's lost.
2: It's quite a popular one.
1: Yeah, and so you've got to understand the significance of this. The temple's rebuilt the sacrifices can take place again because without the temple being on that site, Judaism cannot have sacrifice. And that's the chief problem of Judaism today. Judaism today is rabbinical Judaism. It's not Levitical Judaism. The priesthood, which exists still, is inoperative. It can't operate. There's no temple on that site. But before I go too far into that issue, the second temple... It's operating, but no glory presence like there was in the days, the tent of dwelling, the tabernacle in the first temple. But it actually does come. There will be prophecies. I could share you, share with you a number of prophecies where uh which the prophets spoke about the return in glory. 1st I'll first give you Isaiah, Isaiah 43. Now, Isaiah is writing before the first temple is destroyed. Um, so and he's prophesying the return of the glory before the glory is even departed. Yeah. He says the following, and you'll be familiar with this quote because Mark takes it and incorporates it into his his gospel. In the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Let every valley be filled. Then the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh together shall see it. Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3. Now, this significance here is that all flesh together will see the returning glory. How? why is that significant? Because when the glory was there in the days of the tabernacle and the temple, who could see it ordinarily? Only the high priest, only one day a year, the day of of atonement, Yom Kippur. There was an exclusive residence in that Holy of Holies, Not not any... to Israelite or Judean could just walk in and out of the Holy of Holies. Then we have Haggai and he says the following, I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. The glory of this present house will be greater than that of the former, says Yahweh of hosts. So Haggai is a contemporary with Zerubbabel, yeah. the rebuilding of the temple. And he's, he's hearing all these laments about... How poor the second temple is. Uh, He knows that the glory cloud is not present in the temple. But he says here, this house will be greater than the former. I will fill this house with glory. The glory will return to the second temple and all flesh will see it. How do we understand that? So here's a question i put to you. When did the second temple get its ark and its returning glory? Jesus Christ. Well, you got it. What was the specific event?
2: It was the resurrection.
1: Now, I'll give you a bit of a clue here. You pray the rosary?
2: Joyful mysteries. Uh, well, now we're in Advent. So it would be when um, our lady conceived... That original sin.
1: Okay. We need to move a little bit forward here. Let me put it in the historical context. Let's, the go breath of to, my Lord. let's go to the few decades just before Christ comes into the world.
2: Okay.
1: It's 20 BC. Herod the Great is ruling in Judea and the surrounds as a puppet for the Romans. He's not Jewish. He's Edomain from Edom. He's hated and he knows he's hated. But yeah. to carry favour with the Jews, ordinary people in the authorities, he decides to embark in a number of monumental building projects. And one of those building projects that he thought would win the favour of, of the Jews was the reconstruction of the temple site, augmentation. Now, this is not the building of a third temple. It's augmenting the second temple. And this is a massive project that would take 83 years to complete. Historians would tell you it's only complete in AD 63. But I would like to argue that substantively it's complete a lot earlier, somewhere around 3 to 1 BC, plus or minus. What is the event? It's when the temple, the second temple, gets its new ark and the glory presence. And let's go back to the rosary here. Joyful mysteries, fourth joyful mystery, the presentation of the infant Jesus in the temple. Look at the event. We read it in the Gospel of Luke. There's Simeon, the old man, who's been given a promise that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. There's Anna, daughter of Phanuel, likewise an elderly woman, um, you know, <laughs> around eighty, mid-80s, 84 years of age, plus or minus. They yeah. have a realisation of who has come into the temple that day, the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. And they see that their promises and the promises relating to the Messiah have been fulfilled. What was also fulfilled, that day, the temple got its new ark, namely the Virgin Mary, Our Lady. She is the new ark because she carried, like the old ark, the original ark carried sacred items. I mentioned them earlier, original second copy of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's priestly rod, um, and a bowl of manna from heaven. Now, these were realities. And they were symbolic, however, of something greater in the future. The one who would be the new lawgiver, the new Moses, the one who would be the new high priest, and the one who would be the new bread from heaven, namely Jesus Christ. So the Ark carried types of Christ. Mary carried Christ. The Ark had the Holy Spirit, the Adonai Hakavod, overshadow it over the mercy seat. Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And in that, that was at the incarnation. And at this moment, with the presentation of the infant Jesus in the temple, Mary has enthroned in her arms the glory of the New Testament, now the glory of the second temple. So on that day, the presentation of the infant Jesus, um, which is also a purification ceremony for the Virgin Mary, so they're fulfilling two things here, Exodus 13, Leviticus 12. Um, we have the temple finally complete in its most critical elements. The ark and the glory presence has come to the second yeah. temple. All right. And that's something we should have a realization of. That's something we should celebrate. But again, does it end there? What's more for us as Christians that we should realize? You know, we've got a war on, on in Gaza now. Okay. What are yeah. they really fighting over? Okay. It's about homeland, it's about rights, Israelis, Palestinians, but ultimately it's a struggle for who controls Jerusalem, who controls the Temple Mount. If you go there, I don't know if you've been there, um, George, Not I've yet. Been there four times, it's a, it's a very sacred site, the Wailing Wall for the Jews, and on top of the Temple Mount, where the Dome of the Rock Mosque is, and at the southern end, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, where Muslims believe that a Muhammad Muhammad ascended into heaven from that spot. It's that's a third most sacred spot for Islam after Mecca and Medina. But is it that sacred for Christians? Well, it is important for us historically and religiously as, as part of the foundational roots of Judeo Christianity, Judaism blossoming into Christianity, namely the Catholic faith, the Catholic Church, etc., um, in its complete form. Um, But how critical is it for Christians today? I was there in 2016 with a group of teachers from Sydney Catholic schools on pilgrimage to World Youth Day in Poland. We had a guy, uh, a guide who was a Jewish fellow, young man, youngish man in his early 40s, uh, ex-military and very pious Jew, very respectful of our beliefs. And we were sitting on Mount Olivet looking towards the Temple Mount. And there was the Blue Mosque with the Golden Dome in front of us, et cetera. And he said, one day the Temple will be rebuilt there. We don't know how, but one day it will be. So he's a Temple Restorationist. And I, I still think that's a minority position within Judaism. I stand to be corrected. We do know there are certain strains of Protestantism, particularly dispensationalist Protestantism, who believe that the temple reading from Ezekiel will be rebuilt, a grand third temple on that spot. Is that something Catholics believe or should believe? My answer is no. Okay. And you're about to say something. There
2: there is a great anticipation by evangelical Christians, especially in the United States, um, supporting the building of the third temple, thinking it will usher in the end times and that will be the second coming of Christ
1: okay let Uh, me respond and and there is
2: there and and there are i think attempts within uh jerusalem in the jewish community to try and rebuild
1: yes well, they're rebuilding the temple instruments at the moment yeah they are temple itself you think we've got troubles now just imagine what would happen if they do that but will it happen well they attempted it in the past um In the days of Julian the Apostate, the emperor, Roman emperor from AD 361 to 363, engaged in a project to rebuild the temple to prove Christianity wrong. And what happened? And the records are not kept by Christian writers. um, um, Ammianus Marcellinus, a Roman historian, friend of Julian the Apostate, records what happened. Earthquakes, the earth splitting open, fireballs emerging from the earth, to prevent further construction of the temple. The the destruction of the second temple ushered in was, was part of the process of ushering in the end times. The end times began at Pentecost. We're in the end times now. The end times aren't the last 20 years before the second coming of Christ. The end times began with Pentecost. So the fact is, why do Christians or why should Christians not believe that the third temple, will a third temple be rebuilt? Because the second temple, its priesthood, its sacrifices, the temple itself, all summed up in Christ himself. Christ is the new high priest. Yeah. Christ is the new lamb of God. Christ is the temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. All that. What, what existed in the days of the first and second temple was just a shadow of a greater reality that was to come. And that greater reality is Jesus Christ as priest, as sacrifice and as temple. So, that, you know, like that, um, uh, that saying in, in wild west American movies that this town ain't big enough for both of us, right? Well, the world isn't big enough to have the second temple, its priesthood and sacrifices and Jesus Christ because they are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what? how do we interpret Ezekiel and the so-called third temple prophesied in Ezekiel? Here's a clue. When we read what's there, and I can't remember the chapter off the top of my head, I think it may be around chapter 47, I'll stand corrected on that. But Ezekiel sees the vision of this temple, which is massive and much bigger than the Temple Mount site as it is now. From the right side of that of the threshold of that temple appears a stream of water, flowing outwards, and wherever it goes, it brings life to the world. What Ezekiel saw was Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, pierced in the right side, and the blood and water flowing from his right side. Yeah, that vision of Ezekiel. That water flowing from the threshold of the temple is baptism flowing from the side of Christ, which brings life to the world. And here's another chapter and verse that we should know, Ezekiel 36, 28. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'm paraphrasing. And I'll I'll wash, cleanse you of all your iniquities and all your idols. And I'll give you a new heart of flesh to replace your heart of stone and I'll give you a, a new spirit within you. Paraphrasing, that substantially captures that that chapter and verse. That is what Jesus is referring to when he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water in the spirit. Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 36, 28, sprinkle, with, sprinkle you with clean water and instill in you a new spirit. That is what Ezekiel sees uh namely baptism flying from the side of Christ in this vision. The third temple is Jesus Christ. And this now moves us to something even more grand, even more intimate, uh, more important and more practical. Here's a here's the practical for your toolbox. When it comes to us as Christians and Catholic Christians in particular. What is where is the here some question. Where is the temple today? Where is the Holy of Holies today? And where is the high priest entering that Holy of Holies today? Here's the challenge. You know, you can look at the Old Testament and you think, oh, gosh, the Israelites and the Jews, a subset of the Israelites, Israelites are a subset of the Hebrews and Jews are a subset of the Israelites. Okay. yeah. How come they had all these great privileges? A house wherein God dwelt. Power by day, fire by night. How come we don't get that? Where's God among his people today? How come we can't be in the presence of God? Where's the glory presence among us today? Do Christian peoples have less than the people of God of the Old Testament? The answer is no. In oh. fact, we have more. How?
2: We have uh, the real presence of our Lord in the in the tabernacle.
1: But that's one aspect, absolutely. Let's seize on that and develop that. We don't have one temple or one place. We have yeah. many temples by the tens exactly. of thousands throughout the whole world. And in that, we have a tabernacle. That word is used by the church. It's not accidental. The tent, the dwelling place of God among his people, not one spot there exclusive for one person one day a year, but many temples, many tabernacles throughout the world and all of the priesthood, the ministerial and the baptismal priesthood can come into that presence. That's point one. And that's wonderful. That's stupendous. And that aspect climaxes with Eucharistic adoration.
2: Exactly. Right. And the liturgy can be celebrated everywhere in the world.
1: It That's doesn't right. have to be
2: confined to the Temple Mount.
1: That's right. It's not one spot. So hey, we're beginning to get a realization here that the New Testament people of God do have the privileges that the Old Testament people had, and even and more. more. And 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 how more? What more? Okay. Christ does two things. Our Lord does two things before he ascends into heaven. He promises to send a new paraclete. Go to John 14, 26. He prepares them for the moment when he's going to leave. They're thinking that Jesus is going to be enthroned on Mount Zion, victorious and glorious messianic figure and reign undisturbed to the end of time. They're going to get a shock. Jesus is going to tell them, I'm ascending back into my father to fulfill the prophecy in in Daniel chapter 2, to be the son of man elevated by the way, by the cloud." I'm going, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit out of yeah. sync here. I'm going ahead of myself. When Christ ascends into heaven, the, a cloud takes him up into heaven. And by the way, from the same mount, from, let me develop this point. The, first, the glory of the first temple ascended back into heaven from that mountain in the east. That's Mount Olivet. The glory of the second temple, Jesus Christ, ascends back into heaven from the same mountain. That's no coincidence. The first temple and the second temple are destroyed on the same day of the same month, the ninth day of R, 587 BC, AD 70. That's no coincidence, right? Now, before our Lord ascends into heaven, he he promises to send a new Paraclete to be with you forever, to remind you of everything that I've taught you, etc., etc. That is fulfilled. So we're going to have the Holy Spirit, the glory the spiritual glory, standing next to us. Paraclete is someone, advocate, lawyer, someone who stands next to us, parallel with us. So that's point one. That's fulfilled at Pentecost. Nine days after our Lord's ascension, our Lord commands them to stay in Jerusalem to pray for the coming of the new Paraclete. And it comes now as fire again. Here's the Shekinah again, but personalised fires. Everyone in that upper room, where the, our Lord had celebrated the first mass before his crucifixion. Everyone in that upper room, Our Lady, the apostles, all the, all the faith, 120 all up, the church, the, the infant church, the newborn church, is going to receive the Holy Spirit and receive the charismatic gifts of tongues and courage. It's a theological uh, gift of the Holy Spirit, sorry, and for their mission, to equip them for their mission. So there, here's the glory now Present among his people, next to his people, to assist the church, the New Testament people of God in its mission. Okay, that's bank that. So we banked the presence of our Lord, real presence in the tabernacle and Eucharistic adoration. The glory is among us there. The glory is among us, next to us, and assists us in our mission. But also the, the this spiritual glory, the Holy Spirit. Is not just next to us, but within us. Listen to what St. Paul says here. Firstly, I'll, now I'll give you our Lord first. John 14, 23. So just before our Lord promises the gift of the Holy Spirit to be the, our par, new paraclete, he says the following. If a man loves me, he'll keep my word. and My father yeah. will love him. And we will come and make our home in him. Yeah. The significance of that is not fully realized by us. This is the indwelling of the Blessed Trinity, state of grace, uncreated grace, the dwelling of God within the souls of the just. So the Holy Spirit will stand next to us. The Holy Spirit will assist us, but the Holy Spirit will also dwell in us. Father and son. Now, our Lord doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but St. Paul will very soon in AD 55 thereabout in his first letter to Corinthians, responding to Chloe, who's complaining about Christian men who have gone back to the temple prostitutes of Aphrodite in Corinth. St. Paul says the following, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? which you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. There it is again. Our Lord says the Father and the Son will dwell in the souls of the just. St. Paul says we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Capture this. We are the new temple. That's why we don't have to worry about a third temple built on the Temple Mount. We are the new temple. Christ is temple, the ultimate temple. But we as members of Christ are also temples. And the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwells in us. So we are therefore the new Holy of Holies. Now, in the days of the first temple, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to do the sacrifices, with the Ananiah HaKavod present before him. So we're, this is now replicated in the Christian era. Yeah. We're the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We become the holy of holies. But when does the high priest come to us within our temple? When? Communion. That's right. Holy yeah. communion. So when we're present at the mass, we are present there's heaven being made present before us. Mount Calvary in heaven made present before us. Because what was what is made present before us is that ministerial Christ, priestly Christ in heaven. Read Hebrews 8, read Hebrews 12, 23 to 24. Read about Christ at the right hand of the Father, offering his sprinkled blood. So Christ ministers in the heavenly temple as priest. And what is he offering? Not a new or additional sacrifice to Mount Calvary, but the same sacrifice he did on Mount Calvary. Once in time, now perpetuated in heaven for eternity. That is what is made present at the mass. It's another wonder. That's another awe. You know, why our church is empty? If we knew this, we would have standing room only in the car park, let alone the church, right? So, and we've got the Holy Spirit next to us, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We've got the mass, which brings Mount Calvary in heaven before us, right? We uh, then can receive Holy Communion and the high priest Christ in the form of a Holy Communion enters our temple our Holy of Holies, and we offer that high priest as the Lamb of God to the Father for our spiritual intentions. That is what has happened now. We don't have anything less than the glorious Old Testament people of God. In fact, we've got that and more. More. And it's more intimate. It's more universal. It's more personal. It's more practical. It's every day. Why are our churches empty? Why are only 17% of Americans now going to Mass? Why only 9% of Australians are going to Mass? Why only 1% to 3% of Europeans going to Mass? Why are our churches empty? What have we done wrong? We stopped teaching about obligation and precept and mortal sin if we fail to go to Mass right but we didn't replace it with anything better we left a void we gave people the option they can go to the football instead okay and still feel okay about it you know you can go to the football go to mass bar go to mass first that's more important and don't go to mass simply out of obligation out of compulsion you know perfect love drives out all fear let's go out of love Let's go out of understanding. Let's yearn. Let's realize the spirit of God next to us, the spirit of God within us, us as new temples, us as yeah. the new holy of holies, yeah. waiting to receive our high priest spiritual food for the journey, not from Egypt to, to Canaan, but the spiritual journey from sin to heaven. That's it. That wraps it up. Amazing.
2: Amazing. I mean, you can't get any more imminent than the fact That we can offer sacrifice to God God, through Jesus Christ everywhere in the world, not in a set place, in the new church, in the church, the new Israel, and we can receive God Himself in the flesh, and He dwells in us. I mean, that's going from revealing Yourself through the prophets, building up, uh, you know, animal sacrifices to this. Surely, God has become more imminent, and we
1: need to take that more imminent. He can't be more personal. He can't be more humble. He's coming to us, not just to dwell in us, but to feed us. Feed us with what? His glorified body. Go to John 6. It's there mentioned six times. This is one year before the Last Supper. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And the flesh that I will give is my life. Sorry, and the the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world, John 6.51. And that flesh that we receive in the Eucharist is Christ's glorified body. And that is the food, what Ignatius of Antioch would say in in a letter to the Ephesians in AD 110, 110, that this is the food of immortality, the antidote to death. Jo- Ignatius of Antioch is a disciple of John. John records, and the only apostle who records the Bread of Life discourse at at there at the northern yeah. end of the, de- uh, of the Sea of Galilee, one year before the Last Supper. He's the only apostle who records that in the Gospels. He is the spiritual father of Ignatius of Antioch who passes on that tr- understanding of the Eucharist as the food of immortality and the Antidote to death that replaces what we lost in the Garden of Eden. Now, if you read Genesis 3.22, Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden, out of the Eastern Gate, for what reason? So they would be denied access to the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life, so they would die. But once we're baptized, we can come back through that eastern gate, go back to the new tree of life, the mass, receive the new fruit of the tree of life. Firstly, baptism that enables us to receive the Eucharist, which will be the food of immortality, the antidote to death, Christ's glorified body and enable us to rise in a glorified body. This is astonishing. This is what has to be put out there. Millions, hundreds of millions of people need to know about this. Billions of people need to know about this. They don't.
2: But give us some practical tools this week to take action, to to bring people closer to God and more about his imminence, that he's interested in us. What are some three practical tools so we can take action with this area? I mean, this is a mind-blowing well Practical
1: tools, firstly, let's be like the Jews who heard our Lord at the Bread of Life discourse, verse 34, John 6, 34, our Lord, the, the the audience responded to Jesus and said, Lord, give us this bread always. And we, when, if we're listening to this now and we're going to Mass, just hodgepodge, ad hoc, stop that. Let's go to Mass every week. If we're going to Mass every week, let's start going to Mass every day. If we're going to Mass every day, let's talk to other people about doing the same. Okay, we have to get in our catechesis. Exactly. Get in our catechesis in the next generations. Hey, I want to go to Mass. I don't care. I put Mass first every day, and I put the rest of the day built around it. I'll make sure I get to Mass. I'll make sure I get to the Eucharist. And if there's another COVID lockdown, God forbid, hopefully we'll be allowed just to access the Eucharist, okay? Um, And people will be lining up, people should be lining up for the Eucharist and make sure that when we receive it, we don't just walk out. We give a good reverent thanksgiving afterwards. That's the practical tool. Have an awareness of the Holy Spirit and not an awareness simply for the charismatic gifts. Saint Paul wrote to the first, first letter of the Corinthians to basically give a, the Corinthians an understanding that the charismatic gifts are good to pray for, but they're secondary. That's why he placed teaching apostles, prophets, and teachers, teachers above miracle workers, above mm-hmm. speaking yeah, exactly. in tongues. You know, exactly. let's not be those type of Christians who just seek to, the ostentatious gifts, Right. Speaking in tongues isn't an absolute sign that you are pleasing to God. Charity is the absolute sign that exactly. you are pleasing to God.
2: Exactly, exactly. Mm. So thank you very much for being with me this week, Dr.
0: Robert Haddad.
1: You're most welcome, and thank you for your work. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your work, and keep doing it, and don't listen to anyone who says you should stop. <laughs> Rage on. Right? The more uh, I, I, I think it's the better. I
2: think it's the devil that says to stop.
1: <laughs> the yeah. devil will try to stop you by saying, hey, your views are very low. Why do you bother? And they're never going to get any higher. So why do you bother? Don't listen to that. The devil wants to shut you down because you're doing something good.
2: Yeah, so thank you very much for tuning in with us here. Most welcome. Thank you for the invitation. The cool
1: thank, you thank you so much. Have a blessed Christmas, Advent, New Year, and everything else. And You're a interested.
2: blessed Christmas to you. And thank you very much for being here on the show as a regular. And we very much appreciate uh, your insight, Dr. Robert Haddad. Thank God you so you. much.
1: Thank you very
2: much. So thank you, everybody, for tuning into The Catholic Toolbox. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, of The Catholic Toolbox, wherever you get your podcast, And go to the website, thecatholictoolboxshow.com. That is thecatholictoolboxshow.com. And until next week, God bless. Take care and take action.
0: In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox, as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith, and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.